We direct your attention to the Word of God. You may remain standing now for the reading of the Word. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought Saul, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood upon, among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. That very first verse sets the stage. So Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. By calling the people together, especially by their thousands, he was calling upon the elders of Israel. Remember there were 12 tribes and these 12 tribes had elders, the firstborn and the others of the patriarch of the tribe. And then there would be others and they would number them and they numbered into the thousands and thousands each one. In fact, it would not be but two generations later, there would be so many of them in the land that the Lord would say, they're like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, just like I promised Abraham back earlier, about 400 plus years earlier. And therefore, actually about 900 years earlier, now that I think about it, it's, wow. Um, Call them all together. Let's have an assembly, especially of the elders. Let's bring them all together. And the place he chose to bring the people together with solemn assembly was Mizpah. Mizpah was a tremendous location. You remember a few weeks ago, we had a great revival at Mizpah. It was there where the people gathered and they said, we want to serve the Lord. He said, well, if you want to serve the Lord, tear down all of these idols and put your faith and your trust in the Lord. And the people had a time of repentance and revival and they'd come back to the Lord and they renewed their covenant and their faith in the Lord. And the Lord gave them a great victory when Samuel prayed and they defeated the Philistines. Mizpah was a high point in the life of Israel in this time and they erected a stone, Ebenezer, hitherto has the Lord helped us. And they made it a special place of memory. It's not unusual that Samuel would call them back to this place. This place, there was a physical reminder of how the Lord had helped them and how he had done them so much good. 
And now he calls together this holy convocation, but something that strikes me in this stage setting first verse is, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. That's significant. Samuel has brought the people together before God. One more time, this faithful prophet Samuel is trying to bring God's people back to themselves, back to their senses, back to remembering who God is and what God has done. God's leaders have done this. Moses on the plains of Moab gathered the people together to hear the words of the covenant. Some years later, Joshua had brought the people together at Shechem, at Mount Ebal in Gerizim to there renew the covenant and to come back to their God. And now Samuel was bringing the people back to Ebenezer, back to the place where they had marked and noted that God had been their helper and God had given them great victory. So he's calling them to the Lord. That's the first order of business, to call them to the Lord, to come to the Lord, to obey the Lord, to walk in His statutes, to love Him with all their heart, to keep His commandments, to live in the light of His presence. Samuel's calling God's people back. God's people need to go back. Even the patriarch felt like at one point he had to go back to Bethel, back to Bethel, the house of God to renew and to find the presence of God that had been lost. That was Israel's heritage. Israel was a people that God had chosen for Himself to reveal Himself to them that they would be His own precious, peculiar people. And that's what God has done for us, isn't it? Hasn't the Lord called us to Himself, separated us from the world, separated us from that future that would have been ours if we have not heard and answered His call? Today, we celebrate All Saints Day. I think we've sort of worked a little the meaning of that over. In the medieval church, it was a time where we looked at those who had been venerated. But in our church, we think of all saints as those people of God, those precious people of God, all of God's people, all of His saints that form a great cloud of witnesses that have run the race before us that group of people that we preach almost every Sunday that are to persevere in their faith and in their obedience and in their following and loving the Lord, the the perseverance of the saints, all saints. And that's what Samuel was doing. He wasn't preaching to the Philistines. He wasn't preaching to the Canaanites. He wasn't preaching even to the Egyptians. He was preaching to God's people. That is who needs to hear the voice of God. That's who needs to come together back to the Lord. Samuel began to preach. It says here in the very next verse, he said, He said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord. That's the prophetic formula. When the prophets want to put something out there in front of God's people that's clear and plain, they say, Thus says the Lord. And then he begins a recount of what the Lord says. I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. 
God had brought them up. He had delivered them. He had saved them. But it went beyond that. They had asked for a king principally because they wanted a man to lead them into battle. And Samuel says to God's people, the Lord defeated the Pharaoh, the armies of Egypt. And it didn't stop there. Just read the account. God enabled them in the wilderness to, to defeat the Amalekites. When they came to the passage through the kingdoms of Lot, they had fought battles with Ammon and with Moab. When they came into the Transjordan, God enabled them to have victory and passage over the Edomites, the descendants of, Saul, of, of, uh, of Esau. And now when they came into the land under Joshua, God enabled them to have victory over the Amorite and all of the Canaanites. Time after time after time when they had these major battles, God had won the victory for them. And the only battles they lost were the battles God made them lose because He wanted to teach them a lesson. He wanted to bring them back to repentance. Have you ever thought that the only difficulties you have in your life are what God lovingly brings upon you so you'll get on your knees and turn to Him? For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourges every son that is His. That was Israel's history. And Samuel's just saying, don't you see? This is a story here. A history. A history of victory that God had given His people. And yet, notice the very next verse. But, however, instead of learning from all of that and keeping the Lord as your king and following Him and waiting on God to raise up a king after His own choosing, a king who would be the kind of king that Israel was supposed to have and would also be of the, of the tribe. You have asked for a king like all the other nations. You have forsaken your holy status and you want to be common you want to be everyday. You want to be worldly. Today, you've rejected your God. Remember, God had told Samuel, they didn't reject you. When they came to Samuel very politely, they said, well, you're getting old and you're becoming inefficient and we have a lot of things that need to be done. Your sons are not fit to follow in your footsteps and, and judge us and be our, our leader. So we need a king. And Samuel was... <laughs> flat out angry. That's what the scripture says. He was angry. The Lord said, no, they, they've not rejected you, Samuel. You have properly represented and followed me. They've rejected me. It goes way to the very top. It is a rebellion against my sovereignty. And that's really what sin is, isn't it? It is treason against the Most High God. It's not shallow. It's not slight. Sin is serious. See, it's always about the condition of the heart. So Samuel's preaching now to the people. He said, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to Him, set a king over us. Now, the Lord told them back in Deuteronomy that 
They would come into the land and one day they would desire a king and they would get a king. The Lord would give them a king and the king would be the, of such and such and he should do certain things. And we looked at those a couple of weeks ago, that list of things that the ideal king and the good king would do, some of the things harmful that the king will do that's not what God would have him do. There was a, a law above the king that was to govern, a constitution that was to govern the government. You've asked for a king, you're going to get a king. So Samuel says to the people, now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. The last time they did this in Israel, they were looking for a man. They're looking for a man this time. They're looking for a man to be king. Last time God called them to this particular array, when he was looking for a man who had sinned. Remember the story back in Joshua 7, where they were looking for the man that had sinned, that had caused them to lose the battle at Ai, whereas they'd won the great victory at Jericho. Now there's a search for the sinner. The reason there's a defeat in God's camp is because there's a sinner in God's camp. They were looking for Achan. And Joshua lined them up by tribes. And he began to cast lots, working its way down from the tribe to the clan to the household, to the man, so that they could point out and find the sinner. And that's what happened in Joshua's day. Now they're here in this day, and God's called them to the same array. I wonder if anyone, probably besides Samuel, knew the, the solemn occasion. But that's what they did. They lined up, they cast lots. We're not sure exactly how they did it. The the prescribed way for finding an answer was to inquire of the Lord and the priest carried in his breastplate, in his ephod, in a, in a little pouch, a little pocket, uh, two small instruments. We don't know exactly what they were, stones perhaps, maybe pieces of metal, but they were the urim and the thummim. The urim meant the curse. The thummim meant perfect. When there was a perfect alignment of these two stones or emblems, it was affirmative. Yes, perfect. God is with you. When it was a misalignment, one said one thing and one said the other. It was an incongruity and an inconsistency in the two. Kind of like flipping coins and having two come up heads. That's yes. One come up heads, one come up tails. That's no. That was the way they cast the lots. And lot casting is all through the scripture. You just follow it all the way through. You put through the kings, David, Saul cast lots, David cast lots. They cast lots in the days of the prophets. They even cast lots in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1, that's how Matthias became the 12th apostle replacing Judas, was by the casting of lots. Because here's what they believed. They believed Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, where it said, the lot is cast into the lap. But the Lord makes the decision. So this was a decision that they would all witness was a fair and square deal. 
It was the flip of the coin that they could all see it. It was out there in the open, but yet the results they believed was what God wanted. And they did. They did this cast of lots and it came up the tribe of Benjamin. Well, we're narrowing it down now. Bringing it down to the Marites, the clan, and then to the household of Kish, and then his son, Saul. And it's an interesting little scene here, which uh, has been a, a point of a lot of discussion. I'll try to not say too much about it. But it says, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? <laughs> this was one of those lots where you had to be present to win. <laughs> they came up Saul and where's Saul? He's not here. Is there somebody else? Who's next? Throw the, throw the... No. Lord said, he's, he's present. He's just hiding. And here was this tall, handsome, capable in many ways, incapable in many other ways, as we saw last week, hiding, hiding in the baggage. These people had traveled from all over the kingdom. It had taken them days to come. They had come in their ox carts. They'd come in their donkeys, riding in their caravans, and they had a ton of baggage. And I imagine it was all piled around in piles around the camp. When they went, the Lord said, he's here. They ran to find him. We need to get him out in front of the people very quickly before there becomes some question about what's going on, some question about this decision. Is somebody messing with the ballot box? What's happening here? And they run to find him and the Lord spotted him and pulled him out. Said he's in the baggage. He's back there where he feels comfortable in his comfort zone. He's back there with the donkeys. And they pull him out of his comfort zone and put him in right in the middle. Now, be aware that a lot of things had happened. You remember that he had been appointed by the Lord. He had been anointed by the prophet already. Saul knew he was the man. Saul knew it was coming his way. And when that lot was cast, it was just a triple or a quadruple confirmation. God had already given him three confirmations of his call and his selection, and this was the fourth and final. And he needed to appear before the people in order to be accepted by the people, in order to have the approbation of the people. And bear in mind, this was not the coronation of Saul. That's going to happen in the next chapter. He's going to be crowned king and made king at Gilgal. This is just the time when Israel comes to the crucible of their thinking where they actually bring out the man who will be their king. And he is placed in the middle. It's interesting, the, the text here, he said, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. That's an interesting phrase. It's Translated in some of the older texts, behold the man. Behold your king. Look at your king. What do you think of him? 
see him standing there, no doubt shy, embarrassed, overwhelmed, in the middle, center stage, up front, on the microphone. This is the man. And the approbation of God's people was given. Long live the king. When I was studying through this passage, I was arrested. I was just stopped in my, in my heart. I said, hold it. Where have I seen this scene before? Fast forward 11 centuries. There, standing before Pilate, Christ had been put in the middle of the people on what was called the pavement in the middle of that great room by Pilate, he had been placed there and there stood Jesus, betrayed, bound, falsely accused, condemned, beaten. His body was lacerated, blood was already dripping from his body. His beard had been pulled out. Did you know that was an Old Testament symbol of defeat? One of the things they would do to a soldier when they had defeated him is they would pull out his beard. Or in some cases, if they had mercy, they would shave him clean. But the pulling out of the beard was a symbol of absolute defeat. Pilate, representing Rome, had conquered the Lord's King, the King of the Jews. And that's how Pilate thought of him. And that's what Pilate put up on the cross was the king of the Jews. And they disputed with that. They said, no, he claimed to be king. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. If there was ever a man who quibbled over truth and told the truth, <laughs> it was Pilate. Pilate told the truth when he said, I find no fault in him. The sinless son of God had nothing to condemn him. And that there he stood. He had his beard pulled out. He was mocked by the people, spat upon, this is a long way from the approbation that was given to King Saul on this day. He's standing there in a, in a makeshift, mocking robe. He's wearing a crown of thorns that had been pressed to him, not just for the pain, but for the symbolism. The thorns represented the curse. Back in the Garden of Eden, it was the thorns and the thistles that were the curse of the land. And here it was, crowned, Upon Jesus. Here he was bearing the curse of sin, the curse of the law, the curse that would send him to his death. As he stood there, his blood soaking through his garment and dripping down on the pavement, what did Pilate say? Behold the man. Look at your king. Behold your king. And he turned him over to be crucified. We thought, the writer says that he suffered for his own sins. After all, he was a traitor. He was a blasphemer. We thought he was smitten of God for his own transgressions. He was getting what he deserved, wasn't he? That's what we thought. We were carrying out justice, said the Sanhedrin, said Herod, said Pilate, said you and me. No. Surely, he hath borne our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions. 
The penalty that is due us was placed upon Him. And there, this man, Jesus Christ, died as a substitute. The high priest had mockingly said, you know, it's best that one man die for the people. That's exactly what the substitutionary atonement of Christ is. One man dying for the people. Dying for you and me. Dying for all saints. I'll stop with just one more thing. I don't don't have time to develop it and I don't think I need to. What was the exclamation of the people? Long live the king. Long live the king. We fast forwarded 11 centuries. Let's rewind 20 centuries. That's the resurrection. Jesus was raised to long life, eternal life. A king whose dominion is forever, eternal life, which he then bestows upon his own. He had borne the curses of the covenant. Now he was given by the power of the Spirit of God raised from the dead. He was given the blessing of the covenant. And the blessing of the covenant is you will live forever. No, it's not about Saul, the king. It's really not about Eli, the old priest. It's really not about Samuel, the prophet. When we read these stories out of the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew Scriptures, sacred history, we're reading about Christ. Every time you turn a page in that Old Testament, something will point you to Christ. I think I might have closed my Bible too soon. Let me see if I can find it again. I like what Samuel said. If he hadn't been speaking of Saul directly, he'd been speaking of Christ, it would have been beautiful words. Do you see Him whom the Lord has chosen? Do you see Christ? There is none like Him among all the people. 